Hello, BAST members, and welcome to our fourth podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to be able to talk to Gareth Henderson. Very ironically, he's talking from my hometown in Perth, and so <laughs> he's the POM in Australia and I'm the Aussie in POMILAND. Uh, and we met uh, quite some time ago through speech level singing, and we're going to, yeah, we're not going to talk about how long ago, okay, so it's all right, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so we're going to have a chat because um, I, I don't often talk to Gareth about where he, you know, what his journey was. So I'm really interested to find out more. Um, and then he, well, he and I are going to have some discussions about his experiences and uh, the uh, fact that he's a sound engineer and coming from that side of things as a teacher. And he also has uh, not built one, but two singing studios, and uh, we'll find out what he's learnt from that process. Three singing studios. Okay. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Gareth. I'd love to find out a bit more about where you come from, from the singing point of view and performance point of view, and then what took you into teaching. Um, well, I think I, I, I stumbled into being a singer. So many of the things that I've ended up doing were were, were accidents, happy accidents, I'd like to think. But I was... Um, I was a synthesizer player back in the days of, of Duran Duran and all the neuromantics when everyone had just discovered keyboards that made funny noises. Um, in the, you know, the, the popular band at school, along with a very popular guy who was a friend of mine who was also a synth player. So I think I was mostly just copying him to, to try and be popular. And, and in the band rehearsals, the guy that was, was currently doing the lead singing wasn't doing a great job and, and me not ever knowing when to shut my mouth just piped up that there was uh, something that he should do differently and and he answered well you have a go then and so I did and it was a I think it was either a Duran Duran or a Spandau Ballet song because that's what's in the charts back then and I finished my attempt at showing him how I thought he should sing it and he threw his guitar down in a huff and said right you're the singer from now on then and that's how I became a singer it was never deliberate it's still the reason that I'm such an awful pianist. I swear to God, if he hadn't done that by now, I'd actually be decent at playing the keyboard. But um, that was that was literally why I became a singer. I was probably 15 years old at that point. I still maintain I didn't really start singing until 15 years old. Um, that band kind of did okay, okay-ish reasonably quickly. And I can remember doing our first professional performance at a, a pub in London that was owned by two singer comedians by the name of Chaz and Dave that were famous 30 or 40 years ago. So our first ever professional performance was at the Chaz and Dave in London. Um, and yeah, that, that was kind of how I became a singer. That band went from doing dodgy new romantic covers to changing formats in the famous way that bands do. Anyone that's watched Spinal Tap will know you, you lose a member and then reinvent yourself as a whole new band. That happened to us multiple times um, and ended up being an originals band trying to become successful. Uh, along that journey, I discovered that I was doing some unhealthy things to my voice. Uh, basically yelling really hard into my first bridge. Didn't know there was a first bridge back then. I can remember very distinctly that we used to key change all of our songs so that the highest note we ever I have ever had to sing was always an F sharp because as far as I was concerned, that was as high as I could get. Had no understanding of why. Years later, I now understand it was because I couldn't come out of that first bridge and was just yelling like crazy to get to it. But that's when I had my first singing lessons because of the pain that I was feeling from doing that. That helped. That was a, a very different singing teacher, the kind of singing teachers that we generally deal with these days. But that certainly had a strong effect on me. 
But but through all of that process, uh, having no intention whatsoever of being a singing teacher, I ended up realizing that I wanted to go into studio production because primarily I'd, I'd been involved in going into studios with the band, been fascinated by the process, decided this was something that I had an interest in and could do, and decided to build a recording studio at the bottom of the garden of the house I was just about to buy. So literally chose a house based on the idea of there being a space at the bottom of the garden to build a recording studio. And by that time, I'd got a new singing teacher who was a wonderful man. Um, I still deal with that man on a regular basis, but that's because I married his daughter, um, as you do. And the running joke there is it was a special offer. If you booked enough lessons, you got a free daughter. Um, <laughs> 20, 22 years later, we're, we're still together. So I'm not sure how many lessons I had to pay for, but it was worth it. But my, um, my father-in-law by then persuaded me that building this teaching business was going to take longer than I expected and that potentially I should try and augment my income by singing teaching. So once again, yet another accidental career. It was never designed to be deliberate. It was a, a way of filling in and building an income until I did my real job of being a, a studio engineer. And inevitably, the weirdest thing happened, which was that the singing teaching took off at a very dramatic rate. Um, at that point, I still had a day job, and I was literally just offering myself to be available for the odd singing lesson. And from that first singing lesson, within six weeks, I had to give up my day job because I had too many students. Um, at that time, there just seemed to be a fairly dramatic demand for contemporary voice teaching. Uh, we are talking a long time ago, and, and I guess things have changed. There's been a real significant change in the fact that people consider teaching contemporary voice to be a valid thing. But I certainly struggled to find my contemporary voice teacher back then. And, and when I launched myself as a contemporary voice teacher in Southampton, down in Hampshire in the UK back then, it, there didn't seem to be any others. So... I got dramatically busy, which kind of put my recording studio on hold for a good number of years. And, uh, and I got busy and it was good and life carried on as it was. And then I met a, a lady who'd previously been a, a, a fairly successful number one artist, a lady called Yaz, who sang the song, The Only Way Is Up. And I met uh, Yaz and she wanted to record an album at my recording studio. And that meant that I didn't have enough time to deal with all my students and I didn't want to, to damage my teaching business. So I realized I needed another teacher. And I was very, very fortunate that someone had introduced me to a lovely young lady by the name of Katie Holmes, now Katie Holmes-Smith, who, um, who's probably um, popped up in a number of the, uh, the Bast and, and I Sing publications. Wonderful, I mean, just a phenomenal singer. Uh, who's toured the world now as a um, backing vocalist for Adele and Leona Lewis and Carly and all sorts of things. Back then, she was a young lady who was starting out as a singing teacher, and I asked her if she'd come and teach for me, and she did. And we had a wonderful time and she was just fantastic. But even that, that just seemed to, to skyrocket. She brought in yet more pupils as well as the ones of mine. And we needed more teachers. So I started approaching students of mine that were, um, you know, really wonderful students that I had a great relationship with. And the first two, of course, famously, a young man by the name of Steve Giles and another by the name of Chris Johnson, have also gone on to be rather wonderful and very successful and knowledgeable singing teachers. But... Um, I think it was Steve that basically questioned how I was going to teach him to become a singing teacher. And I was doing very well at my singing tuition, but that, that question really floored me because everything that I was teaching at that time was pretty much made up. Now, that sounds terrible. And it was made up with the best of intentions. And I'd like to think it was made up 
semi-systematically in that I would do something that another teacher I've, I've since valued described as putting his voice on it. So if a teacher, if a pupil would have a problem, I would attempt to emulate that problem and see if I could see what they were doing that was different from the thing that I was doing that was working. And I would try to, to backwards engineer it. But you can't teach that to another teacher for them to go and use. So I realized there was a massive hole in my cunning plan to, to show Steve and Chris how to be teachers and that what we needed was a system. And someone had mentioned the words speech level singing to me, and I think the internet was just about working by then. This was, you know, goodness knows how many years ago, um, dial up. And I think I, I did some research and, and found out that there was this gentleman by the name of John Henny coming to London to do this speech level singing thing at a place called Box Box, which you'll remember well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I clearly didn't need to go because I was so busy as a singing teacher that what would I need to learn? I must have known everything. So I sent Steve, I think Chris went with him on that occasion, but off to do this course where he was going to learn stuff. And he came back with such an immensely glowing report of this incredible experience that he had that I realized instantaneously that if I didn't jump on this bandwagon fast, I was going to be the least knowledgeable singing teacher in the room very quickly. So I uh, got in touch with the people up at VoxBox and I made sure that I was going to be able to come and learn from these people as well. And that's how I began at that point. I'm not sure how many years I've been teaching by then, but a significant number of years. I actually finally found out how to be a singing teacher. <laughs> a fair few numbers into a fair few number of years into my career. And that's still that that particular revelation for me is still a spectacularly important thing that a lot of singing teachers need to realize you can be a very sincere and very um successful singing teacher and still not actually know what you're doing yeah because unless somebody has really imparted a breadth of knowledge to you you're still kind of making it up even with all those wonderful intentions i don't necessarily think of people that are doing what i used to do as as either insincere or irresponsible because if you don't know what you don't know then you don't know you don't know it Mm. But once you become aware that that information is out there, then it's it's something that you kind of need to get on and get on top of. That mm. began a, a you know mind blowing journey for me in terms of what I learned, and it had a significant effect on on where my business went. I suppose in a number of different ways. At that time, that building at the bottom of the garden had become a recording studio that had myself and one other engineer working in it. But thanks to building another little bit on the front of it and then converting a garage, I think we ended up with a total of five singing teachers. In shifts, not all working at once, but five singing teachers and two studio engineers working from my home, which became complicated. Mm. So I ended up having to move that studio to the studio that you were thinking of when you talked about my Mm. my, uh, studio. So effectively, the the studio you're talking about, which was River, was my second attempt at building a recording studio. And of course, now that I'm over here in in Perth, my third. So Mm. yeah, a few times. Made pretty much all of the mistakes you could possibly plan on making. So highly knowledgeable about the mistakes. Yeah, so what what would your top three learning points be from building a studio from scratch? In in terms of building the studio, I guess I would have said that my number one building the business thing is to remember that point about about finding out what you don't know and learning about it because we've all got gaps in our knowledge. But that one isn't to do with building the the physical business. Certainly 
the arrogance that I think I showed in deciding to go from an easy thing and building at the bottom of the garden where you've got no business rates, where, you know, things are just simple. Jumping from there into what I perceived to be an easy movement into this great big building that I was going to spend an enormous amount of money turning into something that it wasn't. There's a there's certainly an eye-opening level of, of things that you, or at least that I, didn't anticipate you were going to spend money on. Business rates is a dramatic thing that if you've never paid them before, and I hadn't, my business rates ended up tripling within a week of opening the studio because the refurbishment that I'd created to the studio changed its value and its, its, its category of use so significantly that what I anticipated as being my business rates literally tripled overnight and ended up being only very li- very small amount less than my rent. So when you think you know what your running cost is going to be month to month for your new business, allow for the fact that your business rates could be more significant than you mm. imagine. And then, Was that because you, know, you had the recording studio? No, it's because I refurbished it, because it went from being what was effectively an empty warehouse mm. into being divided up into separate spaces that were sufficiently, for want of a better expression, plush. They were, they were nice. They were no longer warehouse. Mm. They were then deemed to be offices, and the, the rates on a bunch of separate offices where had once been one big wide-open warehouse was significantly different. Mm. The usage space and the definition of the separate space was reassessed by the local council and yeah tripled the rates so, so how could you have um circumvented that couldn't have circumvented it needed to have known it and didn't right. okay so, so how really could you have known that then yeah i don't think I, I suppose the only way i could have known that is maybe i should have asked similar businesses but hey you know were there any similar businesses in my area no you know I was leading the charge there so I could have asked Voxbox what they were paying up in London but that would have been different anyway because they were paying London rates they weren't paying Southampton rates Mm. but I guess if you could attempt to find the nearest equivalent to what your new business was going to be and attempt to see find out what their rates were the other thing I guess I could have done is I could have had a discussion with my local council about what things would impact the rates. And mm. brutally honest, I was in that situation now. It's gone through my head, and then I've quietly told myself to behave, that if I wanted to do something vastly similar to that over here in Perth, one of the first things I would do is to contact the local councils and find out what all the things that I didn't know were going to be, mm. you know, because there will be different systems for the rates and stuff everywhere locally. So just if, if you're going to do something like this, discovering what the implications for the hidden costs would be. I didn't know, for instance, you know, when you're at home and you pay your rates, included in your rates is refuse collection. Mm. When you pay business rates, not. So you have to pay a bin service to come and pick up all your bins. and So that's a new cost. Um, when you've got toilets in a commercial business, you're supposed to have um, sanitary uh, towel collection and stuff which again, if you're going to hire a service to do that, is going to have a cost. There's all sorts of things that you basically don't see coming when you move from a home business to a commercial business. Mm. And those things had a very significant effect on the costs. Now, that that in and of itself would not have necessarily taken that business from financially viable to not viable, but it certainly did have a massive impact of course, along the lines there, I was also physically refurbishing this building. The building was rented from a landlord on a long lease. Um, 
I think it would be deemed uh, some form of crime to describe my landlord in unflattering terms, but I think it's probably reasonable to say that my experience of that landlord and his straightforwardness with dealings turned out to be uh, not the case. And he pulled some stunts like building in a clause where he could charge me an insurance premium that was not capped. And once again, that insurance premium that he managed to find a way to charge me uh, quadrupled in the first two years quadrupled and that was that ended up being a very significant amount of money a couple two and a half thousand pounds mm. in insurance premiums for that bill having started out at 600 mm. so um those are the kind of things where again i i wouldn't have seen that coming but now i would and if somebody else was going into a commercial premises that's something else i would point out to them construction costs you know you go into um uh any kind of construction these days you really should have an expensively drawn up construction contract. And I've learned that the hard way. You know, you, you assume that a letter that's got an agreement on it about what work is going to be done and how much that's going to cost and when it's going to happen. You assume that that counts as a contract. But actually, construction contracts lead to a lot more pages than that and have um, far more significant clauses. And the fact that my construction process didn't go particularly well in terms of um, them trying to charge me additional fees for all sorts of things that they couldn't and shouldn't did end up in a, in a you know, a, a, it wasn't a high court, but it was certainly a court battle uh, that cost me a massive amount of money. Hmm. So those are, those are certainly things that you would learn from building a studio. There are going to be hidden costs. It's very hard to anticipate those hidden costs. Construction is always, my experience is that it's always going to go wrong. And even since then, I've been talking to people who build homes. You know, you'll, you'll know that here in Perth, the situation with buying homes is quite different to the situation in the UK and that it's very common to buy a house that hasn't been built yet. Whereas in the UK, that's quite, I, I, you know, it doesn't never happen, but it's less usual. It's really common in Perth for people to buy an unbuilt house. And so many people that I've spoken to who bought their house before it was built have told me all the horror stories about all the things that changed along the way. Mm. So I've now come to understand that any kind of construction process is probably going to be fraught with challenges. Mm. And as you goes into business, you know, if you're building a teaching studio or a recording studio, music rehearsal facility, any of these things, we have a bad habit of being that breed of people who are wonderfully optimistic we're doing it because we love what we do and we're passionate about it. So we want it to be exciting and wonderful. And it's all about the people that are going to come use it. And we really do forget about that old business thing. And the other people that are coming and dealing with us, they're just seeing us as a client that they're going to get some money out of and probably more money than we anticipate paying them. So I think we as the, the creatives probably need to have somebody who's a lot less creative than us breathing down our necks and checking our decisions. Because um, I think I've made some poor decisions that in retrospect, someone more business-minded than me would have given me a good slap and mm. woken me up. To. Okay, certainly I'd say in summary, the three things would be, if there are only three, there's always more, but the three things would be expect there to be running costs, ongoing costs that you didn't anticipate. Obviously, try and research as many as you can, but yeah, there are going to be more. If you're paying out for construction, anticipate it going wrong. There are going to be problems, holdups, any time frame you come up with is going to be dented and the costs are going to blow out. So allow a margin, any kind of margin. And whatever decisions that you make along that process, 
have somebody else that's a little less optimistic, creative and warm and fuzzy than you have a look at those and call you out on them. Be forced to justify them and how they're going to work because probably you're being too fluffy and too lovely. (laughs) So I wanted to delve a little bit into teaching. So you're one of the best trainers and you're working with... um, newly developing teachers or people who are filling in gaps. And I wondered uh, what your experience has been with regard to some of the more common things that you find that new teachers seem to struggle with. Um, One thing, I mean, your your experience may be very different with this, but I found it very difficult to make it clear enough to people entering, say, the BAS training program, how important it is that they get their hands around the scales and quickly lots of them you know there are there we get to a stage where we want to do some real hands-on teaching clinics and they're really struggling to play those scales despite having pre-warned before the process started that that's something you're going to have to get to the stage where you can kind of play these scales and still look at a singer and consider what it is they're doing Mm. so I think that's that's something is you know I remember having to take piano lessons just to be able to learn to play these scales I refer back to my comment earlier about what an awful pianist I still am so I think just just seeing it coming you don't have to learn to be a pianist but you really do have to be able to use those scales almost as muscle memory Mm. so that you can have a think about what that singer is doing and, and how you should react to it so that for me is a big tricks or tips on say learning for instance a lot of people seem to um be quite uh, anxious about that long scale um the one and a half octave yeah, yeah. So you learn that well from my point of view one of the things I, I have um um i have what i refer to as a donkey nature i'm one of those people that i'm incredibly stubborn um if you leave me with a carrot i'll follow you to the end of the world but if you hit me with a stick etc and part of my donkey mentality works on myself. I, I like to start with the biggest problem. I like to get it out of the way. So I actually learned that scale before I learned any of the others because I figured if I could get my hands around that one, the others would probably fall quite simply. And a lot of people go the other way. And I think that's the problem is that they end up convincing themselves that the little bits and bobs that they've learned of the easy scales will be enough. Mm. And then it really... So I'd say delve into that one first um the other is is you know the choice of where the fingers cross over when playing scales and things like that it's not so much of an issue with that one but that a a real issue on on how you can just move your hands up and down the keyboards so trying to find a comfortable position for each of the notes that doesn't involve having to do anything overly clever I, you know, copied the fingering of somebody that showed it to me. And I find now that my hands literally move up and down the keyboard without them having to change their shape very significantly, even to the point that now I'm very often playing the scales and I have to close my eyes for a sec to remember what key it is I'm playing because my hands are playing them even though I don't know what they are, Mm. which is useful at the same time, sometimes a little scary because you think now, hang on, what note did they just hit? Because I've forgotten what key I'm in. Is there a simple... One of the things that I did do very quickly when I was trying to learn to play the scales is I started to sit and literally just let my fingers go through the scales with the volume turned down very quietly whilst watching television, watching YouTube videos, and even having conversations with people. Because A, I needed the practice, and B, I wanted to practice whilst doing something else. Um, 
time, that was because I thought that's what I needed to do for my teaching. I've, I've recently discovered some research that still slightly blows my mind, where they say that being distracted when learning a skill helps you to learn it faster. Still not entirely sure, but I've read this, this same stuff in more than one context. Right. But apparently, levels of distraction when you're learning motor skills actually allows you to cement them more quickly. So it may be that my attempt to learn it so that I could do it whilst listening to singers, etc., actually helped me learn it quicker. So that's, that's one tip I'd say, you know, if you're an, a newbie teacher learning those scales, don't be afraid to stick Facebook, YouTube, whatever your chosen poison is on, and just let your fingers do the walking whilst you're doing that. That's interesting. I like that. I sometimes tell students who are trying to play the guitar and sing or even the piano and sing who aren't used to doing the two together to blindfold themselves or to do it in the dark so they yep. start to feel their way around so it becomes more, yep. um, uh, yeah, more like a kinesthetic thing rather than yeah. a visual thing. It's about a position. It's about where the fingers are falling, not where you see them. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, what things do you wish you'd known in reflection about teaching singing right from the beginning? So can I qualify? Do you mean about, about the technique of teaching singing or about the job of being a singing teacher? Both. I okay. Both. So, so let's start with the technique and the pedagogy of, of teaching yeah i mean this one's semi-obvious but i wish i'd realized that there was one because <laughs> like so many singing teachers i i, I would i would hazard a guess that 50 percent plus of singing teachers don't have a pedagogy they're probably good singers they've probably learned to sing and people have told them that they've sung well there's an enormous amount of singing teachers who've gone to a college or a university and studied voice as a subject and have finished that and assumed that means that they're ready to be teachers. Mm. So, so the first thing that I think is important, I didn't realise that I hadn't studied how to be a singing teacher. I'd studied how to be a singer. Mm. And when I realised how different that was, that was mind-blowing. And some people will probably hear that sentence and go, well, I don't get it. How is that different? And when I'm trying to explain it to people, the way I summarize it is that in brutal and deliberately exaggerated terms, if you are a singer who then decides that they're ready to be a singing teacher, you're the same as a sick person who went to a doctor, got cured, and assumes that you're now capable of dishing out cures. Mm. Because what you haven't found out is there are lots of other things that could be the same as your sickness, it may well be that, yes, other people with the same symptoms as you have the same ailment. But for a start, they could be people with the same symptoms as you that have a different ailment with a different cause. But there's also going to be loads of people that have different symptoms. And until you go through that process of learning to assess all those symptoms, to look at what the reason, the thing that's causing those symptoms would be, and then to have a pharmacy full of possible prescriptions, until you've done that, you really haven't learned how to teach, you've mm. learned how to sing. And you can be an amazing singer. You could be a way better singer than your singing teacher. But that doesn't necessarily mean you've understood how to teach. So that's a big one. And as I say, all those people that already know that are going, yeah, whatever. But mm. for the people that haven't yet had that penny drop, 
that that hit me real hard. So I think that's important. Um, there's this this again. I mean, I'm going to tell you what I learned, and I have to say this is something that other teachers and possibly even you may disagree with. But I still fundamentally believe that a significant proportion of my job is psychology, to be able to read what a student is thinking when I'm getting them to do something or when I'm asking them to do something, because I'm constantly reading students to see whether or not they got it, whether or not that thing that just happened has actually been recognized, to see whether they're happy with it, because sometimes it can have happened, but unless they've accepted it as a positive change, they're sometimes still fighting it, to see whether or not the description that I've used has made sense to them or whether or not even that was a valid description, it just doesn't come across in words that, that work for them. I mean, that comes back to the old issue of the fact that some people learn by feel, um, sensation, kinesthetically. Some people learn by sound, some people learn visually. But sometimes it's beyond that. Sometimes you just used a bunch of words that didn't, that didn't kind of make the penny drop. I'm a huge fan of trying to understand what what things are interesting to that singer and then trying to think of analogies that work for them. Sometimes I'm flawed because what they're interested in is something I've got absolutely no comprehension of. But even then you can amuse them by going, right, so if we were talking about your thing, what would, and then, you know, they'll get into a conversation with you, right, okay. So if you imagine it was like that, and very often it'll engage them because it breaks down a barrier whilst they're explaining to you about their thing. That, that has an effect on the on the relationship you have with them. And of course, then maybe you can find a better analogy. So I think, yeah, for me, that was seeing that it's there's a big deal of psychology. And if you're not prepared, from my point of view anyway, if you're not prepared to put your efforts into understanding how your pupils are thinking, then I think you're going to struggle to educate them well. I think you have to be willing to kind of make that journey and kind of think about their mind and how they feel and what they think about it. No, I definitely um, support that as well, um, which is one of the reasons why I tell teachers also to get the student to paraphrase yeah. what, what they think they said. Yeah, Partly absolutely. because you're trying to figure out do they understand it and partly also you're also ascertaining how do they think, you know, what, what are their reference points as well. No, I, I totally agree um, yeah. with, uh, you know, the fact that we need that skill, yeah. So what about... Um, with, um, oh, sorry. There was one. Yeah, go on. Oh, that's okay. Those two, I was I was I was going to try and think of a third, but hey, go for it. What were you moving on to? Yeah. No. Um, so the other thing was about um, the business side of being a singing teacher. Yeah. So I mean, one thing that I've come to understand is that, based on my age, which is obviously as you can tell, twenty-one. Um, a man of my advanced years who has a family and children, the hours that I wish to be teaching are not conducive to what most people need from a singing teacher because they need lessons outside of school hours or outside of their work hours. So the one thing that I've realized is that you are basically likely to, if you go into this kind of, of business, to be working unsociable hours. And as much as you can try and find ways to manipulate that back into hours that you want to work. If you set yourself up as a private voice teacher who's teaching from their own home or studio, you need to be aware of the fact that your majority of actual tuition is probably going to be in unsociable hours. But then you've also got to be aware that the rest of your business is 
basically never going to switch off. Mm. And trying trying to avoid, I mean, you know, when you're in when you're in a new business and you want to build it up, if a person contacts you at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning, you'll probably answer that phone call and talk to them for an hour about why you're such a great singing teacher and why they should be with you. But three years down the line, when you've just taught 40 lessons that week, when the phone goes at seven on a Sunday morning and you can see it's a client calling you, you're going to really wish you had two separate phone lines. Hmm. So maybe thinking about, about how to separate your business life from your personal life at some point hmm. is something difficult to see coming i've been at the stage in the past where i have actually gone the whole hog and got a new mobile phone and said right my current mobile phone number is purely for my business mm. and it's going to get switched off when i'm not available for work and i have this other mobile phone i don't do that currently i'm back on having one phone i try to just be disciplined with myself but i won't lie my wife tells me off frequently for dealing with um business related things when she's trying to talk to me about the kids and schooling and I, I have to, I literally, physically, I made a choice that if I'm on my mobile phone looking at Facebook or business messages or whatever, my children walk in and start talking to me, I turn it over and put it down until they finish talking to me because I realized that my, my family were being ignored because mm. my business was always that very in-your-face thing that needed to be taken care of. That's a really tough lesson to learn. And it's easy when you don't have a family around you asking for stuff from you. It's also easier to justify when you're at the beginning of building up the business because that's the most important thing but if you don't see that at some point and say no the reason i did this was to support nurture my family you don't actually allow your family to be supported and nurtured then you know you run the risk of not having them around anymore because they don't mm -hmm. like to be ignored mm -hmm. get so that's tough that's to see the dividing line and and that dividing line also then spills into whether someone is your student your friend or somewhere in between the two. Because, you know, we are singing teachers, we make friends with our students. Mm. We, we work in an environment that's very conducive to people telling you about their feelings and for you giving them advice on those feelings. You know, I have at least one male student who I swear spends more of his singing lessons asking for relationship advice than he does singing. Um, and well, yeah, you, yeah, that's an interesting one because how do you deal with that when a student comes in and you find that, you know, in the first half an hour you've been talking about social things? And I know that in myself I've been in a situation where I've gone, how can I be empathetic and listen? Because obviously this person needs to get it off their chest. But by the same token, bring it back to the fact that this is a business transaction. You've paid me to give you a singing lesson and uh, we haven't actually done any singing yet, and we're now maybe nearly finished the lesson. So how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, first let me say that I can honestly say that more than once I've had a, when I've tried to say to a student, hey, look, we're wasting your singing lesson here, more than once I've had someone say, don't worry about it, you're cheaper than a therapist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> more than once you're cheaper than a therapist. Well, okay, fair enough, I'll put my rates up then. But I think there is a case to say, it's not like you said, until you can get them in an emotional condition where they're ready to go back to singing, you're almost on a hiding to nothing anyway. Mm. Sometimes I'll persuade them that going back to singing 
is the solution or at least the temporary fix to their problem. So, okay, I can see how you feel about this. What we're going to have to do today is to find a way to put all that emotion into our choice of song. So we're not going to carry on singing that lighthearted, chirpy song. What we're going to do now is we're going to pick something where the, the emotions that you're feeling right now are relevant to the song, and we're going to see how we make that work. So sometimes it's a, you know, it's a little bit superficial, but you can pull it off more than once, mm. or you can bring people's emotions bear on but there are really genuinely times there are people who the only thing i can do is try and bring their emotions under control until such time as they want to deal with their singing mm. it's difficult because there were times in the past when i felt like i was charging people for something they hadn't had but i think the first time someone said to me you're cheaper than a therapist i realized that they were getting what they wanted what I try and avoid is being the one who mm. opens up the conversation mm. about their social life. Mm. Clearly, at the beginning of a lesson, you go, so how's your week been? Did you get some time to practice this week? But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to know what your holiday was like. Mm. But you know, if, if they then start talking about stuff and you can't bring it back under control, I have to not feel too guilty about it. Mm. And how involved do you get in in the conversation is it do you just sit there and let them unload largely actually with the ones that are unloading i nod sagely i worked out many many years ago that sometimes allowing people to talk is the best thing there'll be a point at which somebody potentially pauses because they're asking for some feedback and then i try and give the most honest and dignified feedback i can i often worry that some of the advice i give people is borderline rude or borderline cruel. But because I, 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 I always try and make sure that I say everything with a, a careful kind of, you know, almost fatherly tone. Look, you know, you don't have to take my advice, but this is, um, certainly this is just my opinion, but, you know, when, when I've got, like I said, the guy that's constantly telling me about the girlfriend that's doing things that are really upsetting him, when I have to say to him, look, you know, I know this is going to backfire because I'm going to tell you right now you need to end that relationship and next week you're going to turn up with her. But in absolute truth, I think you need to end that relationship because it's distracting you from doing all the things that you really want to do. Mm. And then I kind of try and get back to the singing again. <laughs> It is a hard one because uh, as I try and explain to um, newbie singing teachers, quite often people are coming to you because it's actually helping them. Like I've had people who've revealed that the reason they had singing lessons was because they were going through depression and this was their way of just ha having a moment um, to themselves that's more joyful. And, and then it starts to feel like a real responsibility, doesn't it? You know, that, like, oh, my gosh, you know, that's how significant this lesson is to you. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you make a wonderful point, which, you know, we could, we could expand upon too much, but also we can expand upon too little, which is that when someone comes to you for a singing lesson, sure, if you're the kind of singing teacher that feels that the level of tuition that you can give is so valuable and in detail that you only want to work with those singers that are just about to win the voice etc i respect that i know teachers who are like that and they feel that that's what their job is and i totally respect that i do have a different feeling i feel that my job is to help singers of any level a achieve more with their voice and b build a relationship with their voice that's a positive one that they can feel better about mm. and i literally i mean i have a student who has some form of mental disability for sure it's not um i've known i remember when katie used to teach a guy that had a far more severe disability than the one that i have 
And she said to me, she felt like she wasn't giving him his money's worth because of the amount of, of progress that she could create within him for what he was paying for his lesson. And I pointed out to her that I knew for a fact, because it had been told to me, that coming for his lesson was the absolute highlight of his week. It was the one thing that he focused on and looked forward to more than anything else. And I asked her whether she really felt comfortable taking that away from him because she felt guilty about what she was giving him. Mm. And when she looked at it that way, she kind of had a whole new view on how, how humbling that was, that she was the most in exciting, most look forward to that opportunity to sing, however badly he was singing, but mm. to have someone listen to him and give him 100% of their attention and to, to help him with what he loved. And as I say, I have a guy at the moment who's nowhere near on that level, but it is a similar thing. That's what he gets excited about. I see his posts on Facebook about the fact that he's like he's on his way for another lesson. And, you know, he's so focused. And the fact he has made significant program progress, but it's still a long way away from being what you'd call a polished singer. Mm-hmm. But I feel a level of privilege that that's what I get to offer people. And like you said, you get those people that are coming to you because they're suffering depression. I've got a young lady that I teach at the moment, and in the early days of teaching her, I was very confused by her lack of ability to articulate verbally almost any response to the extent that. So how did you get on with your practice this week? Hmm. Did you you work on the song that we said? Uh, And I'm not kidding. It's literally at that level that almost every response is a a form of nonverbal communication. And I, I pondered over this for a long time and figured that she'd eventually get fed up with the polite bullying that I give her. Because I will now joke with her and say, right, I'm going to leave that one there and see how long we take to get to an answer. And she will giggle for a bit and eventually give me an, a, a form of an answer. But I've come to realize over a period of time that she feels a very large level of social awkwardness about dealing with people. I've discovered that she actually blogs on the internet and that she's very articulate when she blogs on the internet. So I've realized that it's nothing to do with what's going on in her head. That's full of wonderful information, but she feels awkward about getting into a one-to-one conversation. And she comes for these regular weekly lessons and she works hard when she's opening her mouth to sing, all the words come out, don't get me wrong. This process that we have of me forcing her to articulate certain things that she's done or is doing with the singing, is actually part of her process of becoming less socially awkward. Mm. And I am helping her with her singing, but I'm also helping her with something else. And I'm sensitive to the privilege that I have to be able to offer that service. It's Mm. fine with me. Now I understand it, I'm comfortable with it. So I know that you've worked with singers who have gone on to be signed or, you know, touring, Birdie being one of them. I wondered... uh, what you've noticed is a difference between singers of that level and singers who may not have the, they may have the ambition to do that, but may not ever do, achieve that. So, I mean, one of the things that I would have to say, and again, other teachers' experiences may vary. Of the people that I've taught that have been very successful, the difference between them and a certain other singers that haven't gone on to be very successful is nothing. There are some wonderfully talented singers that I've worked with that are probably every bit as talented, motivated, able, dramatic as those ones that have gone on to be famous, but they may not have had the same opportunities. Mm. 
obviously the ones that have gone on to be successful have shown a level of talent and application. I'm not saying that they've gone on to be successful with nothing, but I think it's unfair to say that they've gone on to be successful because there was something specific that they did or had that every other singer that didn't make it didn't have. You know, I've been frustrated by the fact that I've worked with some singers that have just made me go, wow, you're just so awesome. And they just haven't been able to go on and, and, and get there. Flipping it around another way, which I think is for, the, for, for us normal people that aren't famous, I think is worth understanding is that some of those famous people are 100% as fragile about their singing as all those non-famous people. You know, you mentioned Birdie, and I, I'm, I hope I'm not in trouble for saying this, but I don't think she ever had a singing lesson where she didn't tell me how terrible she was. Mm. You know, she was genuinely and sincerely concerned that she wasn't good enough, even when she was out there doing great big gigs to famous people. Mm. And, you know, I think for me that's lovely because it shows a sense of humility. Um, but, yeah, singers aren't all necessarily the ones that are out there on the stage doing a great job aren't necessarily stood in the wings going, yeah, I'm just so amazing. I so belong here. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're fragile. They're scared. They want to do a good job. They want us to show them how to do a good job and then to reassure them that they will do a good job and also to reassure them that if something goes wrong and in that one instant they don't do the best thing ever, that they'll still be able to carry on their career the next day, which mm. they will. Mm. Actually, I think Bertie's quite a good... Um person to talk about vocally so she has or certainly in the beginning a very breathy approach to her voice how did you deal with that given that that was her sound well that leads us into us again how can I get sued no hopefully not so Birdie's A&R man uh, at the time who if he ever sees this will know I'm talking about him had a very strong opinion about whether or not she should be taught anything that made her do anything different to what she was already doing. He he used an expression about how many people have bought one of her singles and therefore he must be right about her voice because all those people wouldn't have bought her singles unless he was right about her voice. And I all, only ever took it upon myself to effectively try and fulfill her requests. When I was asked by other people that were involved in working with Birdie, whether I was on their side, et cetera. I only ever said, I'm always only ever on one person's side, and it's the singer's. Whether it's a, a parent and a child or whatever, I'm only ever on the singer's side. And if sometimes I have to take on board other people's feedback to help the singer, I will do that. Again, like when the parent tells me what the kid is doing at home. But in the case of Birdie, she had singers whose voices she loved, and she would say, I want to be able to do that. And I would work to be able to show her how to do that. And I, I don't want to name names because I'm not sure that it's appropriate to do it. But she would show me famous singers and we would work on their songs. And, you know, that's quite weird when you're working with a singer who's already successful out there and they're singing cover versions. But she wanted to be able to do stuff. And as you can probably imagine, some of those singers have voices that were a lot less breathy than hers. You can also imagine that when she was singing in that breathy way, some of her own songs would inevitably lead her to problems because you and I both know that there is a cost to breathy singing. And you know exactly what the kind of problems she was going to develop were, and she did. So we worked on, on the, the fixes basically as one and the same thing, working on helping her to be able to control that breathiness and to choose it 
for it to be something that she could do if she wanted to, to have that color, but to negate if she needed to, either for another color or to be able to stabilize her control of that voice in a certain instant. And we did that with scales and techniques, but almost driven by the goal of to sing songs that sounded correct when sung with that different coordination. And I'm still, as a smug singing teacher dude, very happy to listen to her third album and hear the strength in her voice now. She is not that young lady with that breathy voice anymore. She can be whenever she wants to be. She still has the control and the artistic creativity to do it. But when she wants to go into the tough places in her voice and dig in hard, she does it. And I sit there with this great big grin on my face, remembering the lessons where we did that, remembering the lessons where she told me she couldn't do that, and remembering the lessons where she nailed it and how she lit up when she managed it. Mm. And I feel very comfortable that what I gave her was choices. Mm. I love that. Yeah. And I think mm. in general, uh, that's the best that we can do really to our students to give them choices. And I, I'll yeah. sometimes if a student says to me, yeah, but I don't want to sing like that, I'll say no, but you may one day want to. And wouldn't mm. it be good to have the choice? And yeah. also what happens if you want to demo a song that you've written for someone else but who has a different vocal style to you, yeah. at least you'll be able to demo it in the way that you think it should be sung. And then yeah. suddenly it becomes uh, like, oh, yeah, that sounds like, you know, a viable yeah. idea and they'll take it on board. Okay, so what are the most common things that you see in singers that come into your studio? Um. I, I, I do, I feel that there is a slight difference in what I see in terms of a vocal need that I'm working on since I moved to Perth than in the UK. So I'm about to describe something that I feel is slightly different. I see more people here, young ladies, because I teach a lot of young ladies. I, maybe it's the whole birdie thing being on the resume. But I certainly see a lot more young ladies who I would describe as having light voices that need to learn to be tougher with their voice mm. because the sounds that they're wanting to achieve, the songs that they are showing me as being what they want to sing require a vocal coordination that is tougher than the one that they have been using. Whereas I found in the UK, more often than not, I was trying to teach people not to shout. That's a very brutal version of, but you know, you know, as a teacher, you understand what I mean. There, there seemed to be... Uh, um, um, more people that were going into tough that needed to be shown how to use the control, which, by the way, I'll always put my hand up and say, that's always going to be who I am. As a singing teacher, we may learn to negate our, our base instincts, but I know that that's my base instinct. So when I meet another singer that does that, I don't judge them overly harshly because I understand where it comes from and, and how hard you work to stop doing it. But certainly over here, I find there's a lot more people that come at it from the other direction mostly in the in the terms of, of the, the younger female voice again some of again even the, the more mature women there's been women that have have learned to sing in a very chilled out maybe a, a jazz what they would describe as a jazzier style I was dealing with a, a lady recently who's a lovely jazz singer but yes the way that she has taught herself to use her voice is very deliberately that kind of softer breathier version of you know we can name the, the singers that they're copying but it's interesting that that seems to be almost a cultural difference. Mm. I'm not entirely sure whether it's based on the material that people are singing, the predominance of the teachers that have worked strongly in the area. So, so I see that as being a different thing, certainly a thing I deal with a lot of. Because I'm perceived as being a contemporary voice teacher, 
and because maybe there are a lot of voice teachers out there that, that don't advertise themselves as contemporary. I find myself that another thing it, that I'm teaching people is, is not that thing that we as, we as teachers that studied how to use scales and sounds to rebalance people's voices, we don't necessarily, as our first thought, talk about things like timing and feel. We might well do afterwards, but I've dealt with a lot of people that don't understand how to make something feel funky. You know, every, they're singing everything legato yeah. and the feel of the song is constantly behind. As a, as a net result, they're struggling to keep up with the breathing because they're holding onto the notes for too long to get the proper breath in before the next note. Everything's backing up. The whole thing sounds sluggish, tight and out of breath. So that's the thing that I deal with a lot is, is to just say to people, look, before we mess with all this other stuff, you're going to have to actually understand when to stop singing the notes. And I do a lot of, you know, getting people to, 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 to make it more staccato, to chop it up and to understand how the feel of that works. Mm. And often just to study, even studying the vocals that they're copying, where they think that these notes last for this long. You listen, can you hear? Can you hear how many gaps there are there? Mm. You know, so that's a, a thing that I deal with a lot. Uh, there's two. Don't ask me for three. Okay. So um, we come to the end of our podcast it's been really great to hear all your thoughts on this and I feel like there's lots of conversations that could come out of the stuff that you're <laughs> saying. Um, I just wondered, was there any question that I always give the interviewee an opportunity to ask me a question, um, about whether that's about my business or about singing teaching um, or singing? So I do have a question and it is because I'm currently dealing with a problem that I'm not sure if I have the right solution to, and maybe you do, but it kind of relates back to something that you said a moment ago, which is what triggered the thought. And it's um, to cut to the chase, how do you deal with that moment when you feel 100% confident as a teacher that what you're asking a singer to do is the right thing mechanically for their voice, but when they do it, and you're like, yay, you see, that's it. They go, but I sound bad. How do you deal with the concept of them seeing it as an aesthetic, not as a function? You're 100% confident that the function is now correct, but aesthetically, they're not happy with the sound. Mm. How do you resolve that? Well, first of all, I find out what do they, what were they expecting? You know, mm. so what are they comparing it to? Uh, is it compared to how it feels, to how it sounds, to what they were expecting or what they want their voice to sound like or what are they comparing it to someone else's voice? Um, so I find out that because obviously if they're comparing it to someone else's voice, then we have to bring it back to this is your instrument um, mm. and whilst you might be able to get some of the functional similarities, no one is ever going to sound exactly like someone else. If it's because of their expectations of what their voice should sound like, then it might be a conversation of, well, what do you think your voice should sound like and what is it about your voice that you don't like and what is it about um, that sound that you didn't like? Then the other thing that I will often do is I'll say, well, let's look at the, um, the elements of good technique or, or whatever it is that our goal was. So if, if we're going to give it a score out of five, I've given you a five because you were on pitch, you coordinated that correctly, there wasn't any um, inconsistency, uh, you had access to vibrato or dynamics or whatever it is, and I'll, you know, I'll list out the components. 
Mm. Um, and then say, do you, do you agree or disagree with if we just tick off these little checkboxes, did you achieve that? Yes. Okay. So whether aesthetically you like it or not will be based on what you're expecting um, and also at the end of the day, maybe you won't use it but you will have access to it if you need it. And if it's a, to do with um, vocal health, for instance, so yeah. a really good example is um, Adele, after she had her op because um, she had a hemorrhage, her vocal oh. folds were pristine, but she hated the sound. I don't know if she hated the sound. Actually, I know she didn't like the sound and that was the thing that she complained about it. It was too clean. Well... Yeah. If you're an artist and this is what you want, then I have to then figure out how can I give you that in the safest mm-hmm. possible way. And so then it might be that I go, okay, well, functionally, everything was absolutely as it should be given these criteria, but let's figure out how we can give you what you want aesthetically mm-hmm. while still staying safe and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll probably be quite a long conversation, <laughs> I would say. It's not... Not something, because as you said, it's about what the student wants and it's always about the singer. And if they want a particular sound, like with Adele, it's very important. It's part of what her sound has been and it's also part of emotionally what she connects to. So is there a safe way of giving her that sort of coarser, growlier sound Mm. um, in a manner that's not going to have a negative impact? Or like you were saying with Birdie, are there certain places we can do that and then not do that so that there's this balance through through uh, throughout your vocal health, really? So I think that's how I would approach it. Um, and if it's really, really, you know, we'll, we'll never come to any agreement, then it might be I'm not a good fit for you. Yeah. And I, my worry is that that's where it may end when you get to the situation where in, in this particular client's uh, case, a lot of what you just said, I couldn't agree with more, and that's kind of the route I went. And in terms of getting her to show me a singer singing a song that she considers to be, yeah, that's what I want to do, listening and going, hey, I know how to get her to sound just like that, going through a process, getting her to sound just like that, and her going, no, but she sounds good and I sound bad, and me going, no, the two of you sound the same. Mm. Listen, I'm going to record you. I'm going to play it back. Can you not see that you now sound the same as that? no, no, I sound bad. And I think that there's an element of the audio equivalent of, you know, they talk about body dysmorphia, where people see themselves. I think there's an audio version of that. I think people hear themselves and it's just, it's them and they can't come to terms with it's them. Mm. And if if that's what it is, I am at a loss. Yes, well, what about if if you got her to do all that, uh, a snippet of a recording to take to other people to listen to? I did actually ask her the question, who would have to tell you that it's good for you to believe them? Yes. And her answer was that she, she didn't know, she couldn't think of someone that yeah. could tell her. So that is definitely um, definitely coming from in her mindset and a belief that she has. Um, and it might be uh, something to the, to the effect of this is too easy and so it can't be good or... Um, I'm not that person, so I'll never be able to be that good, you know. So it's a belief a belief thing which is maybe beyond yeah. the singing teacher's um, ability to deal with. Maybe. And, I mean, you can only explore it. Uh, yeah. And I reckon that 
there are times when you have students that you just aren't a good fit and maybe yeah. nobody will ever be a good fit for them and eventually they have to realise that themselves. But, you know, at what point do you go, okay, I've probably gone as far as I can and yeah. if I'm not able to give you what you want because as far as I'm concerned I've we've ticked all the criteria required, then it might be yeah. time for you to find someone who's a better fit for you. Yeah. And then quietly yeah, in the back of your mind, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I I really feel like there's not a lot of singing teachers out there that do think that way. Right. Yeah. I think it's important to be able to let go too. Yes. Yes. I I know we you know we talk about that when teaching people in the Bast course about yeah. about realizing a that there's time to let people go and b as you said that you can't be the right teacher for everybody mm. and you know. I, I have definitely had that experience. I've seen a student had to go to another teacher and I've gone, wow, I wonder what I did wrong. And then I thought, you know, pretty sure I didn't. I just wasn't the right person. I didn't, you know, say the things in the way that person needed to hear and, and that's fine and good luck to them. Yeah, yeah it's so. like anything, isn't it? You know, we, the people we choose to hang out with uh, are the people that we have a good fit with. And that's often why we have problems with our families because we didn't choose our families. We were born into no them. Comment. And that, no comment. Yeah, the reality <laughs> is, you know, there's this expectation somehow that if you're related you're supposed to, you know, get on, but it doesn't always happen. But at least with our friends and choosing our friends, um, we're more likely to go for the people that are a good fit for us. But once again, yep. with, with being a singing teacher, a student may come to you because other people have recommended you or because of who you taught or because of the technique or whatever it is. They they may not think about the fact that, you know, personality-wise um, mm. there's a conflict. And and it's But that's okay. It is okay. Mm. As a singing teacher, we have to be the ones who are able to let that yeah. choice to be made or, or to maybe guide them into that. And it yeah. might be that if you guide her that way, she then will stop to think and go, oh, hang on a minute, you know, maybe I do need to listen to him because he is helping. Or she may go and have a lesson with someone else and realise now she's got a comparison and realise that actually what you are doing is really helping her to achieve her goals. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know, occasionally there will be that, that student yeah, absolutely. My so frustration. I was working with a deluded student. <laughs> yeah. You can't yeah. hear they're out of tune and not in time and, you know, all, all of that stuff. And it doesn't matter how much you bang your head against that proverbial wall, they just never get it because they're deluded. <laughs> Got one of them. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, thanks very much for your time. Yeah. I think it's, it's been pleasure. really, really informative and uh, I love having these conversations. Um, Me too. We miss not having you over here in the UK. Yeah, I miss not being able to come to the big teacher events. I think you've got a good one, well, an awesome one this year, haven't you? We do, the VIP one, which is happening not this weekend but the weekend after. Um, So I'm wondering, I think that they were talking about actually um, doing live streaming of it, so... If we get hold of any of the good stuff, I'm I'm always very very jealous. Well, the other uh, option is to set something up over in Australia. 
Yeah, I think if I try and persuade the VIP crowd to come here, you can probably imagine how, how chuffed they'll be with that idea, but I'll give them my best shot. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much, Gareth, and uh, we'll see you around in the Dice Forum and community. See you soon. Ah.